Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we hear from Jake Hofberg, partner and publisher at Equifund, a FINRA-registered crowdfunding portal. Jake has led an interesting career through direct sales, content writing for Agora Financial, and now leading the publishing of Equifund. It is this mix of these experiences that intrigued me to hear his thoughts on how to reach and engage investors. Further to that, I find the world of private equity crowdfunding quite interesting, and the application of copywriting and marketing of a deal to the public is equally as interesting for me. Jake and I meander a bit in our conversation, but we hit some really good points that draw on his experience with working with Agora, and now with helping package up promising early stage deals for crowdfunding. Our discussion about narrative development could change how you pitch all together. So enjoy the show. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. You know, you and I had a pre-call and we started to talk about a lot of the topics that you're involved in from crowdfunding to content production to newsletters. I mean, there's so many things that I think are both really interesting and fascinating, both for, for myself and our audience. But I think the best way to go about this is if you can give us a background on your experience, your work history and, and your professional focus, and then we'll build on that for our conversation. Yeah, fantastic. So my most fun story is just the first business that I ever started. And in terms of kind of how I got into this whole entrepreneurial racket, so to speak, I started my first business, I think like most entrepreneurs did by solving a problem that I and my friends in high school at the time had. So I was 16. And somehow I decided that the best thing I should do is start a candy store in my locker because my friends were complaining about how expensive the vending machines were getting. And I think there, I think there was like a recent price hike or something like that. And so people were complaining about how expensive this was. Now keep in mind, this is like 2002. So, you know, a dollar and a quarter was massive too. <laughs> that was a lot of money. Man. So... I decided to, you know, I'd go to Costco, buy candy and stuff that wasn't in the vending machines. And I stocked up and, and soda, actually. And I stocked up my locker and I sold candy and soda to my friends. And I didn't realize how great of an invention this was at the time, but most of them didn't just like carry cash on them all the time. So I decided to start offering my customers credit. So, and it's, it was like straight up loan shark credit. So I was undercutting the vending machine by half. So everything was 50 cents to buy. But if you wanted to buy it on credit, it was 25 cents interest every day that you were late. So giant, giant loan shark level spreads. So I ran this little <laughs> book of business and I made enough money every day to buy lunch at the cafeteria. So I made, you know, five to $10 a day doing this. So that was my very first business. And the school eventually shut me down because they thought I was dealing drugs, which is, you know, another hilarious part of that. 
Then when I got into college, I wound up starting a bunch of other weird businesses, mostly in entertainment and bar promoting and clubs. And basically I just wanted to finance my drinking habit. And then my last year in college, I threw a rap concert, which was financially devastating for me. <laughs> and so after that, I got a job in direct sales. A couple of weeks following that, I went to work for a door-to-door sales company called the Southwestern Company. It's located in Nashville. It's the oldest direct sales company in America. And that was really where I learned how to run a business the real way. I wound up being a top first year that year. I wound up coming back for, I think, four and a half years. So I wound up recruiting other students and built a direct sales organization. I was a full-time recruiter on campus for a couple of years. I graduated from that company and went to a different company that the parent company owned. I worked, uh, sold luxury men's clothing. And along the way, I heard about direct response marketing. And, and it was like, I tried a lot to get some of that internet money, right? Where I didn't have to drive around territory anymore and knock on doors and just pick up the phone and just kind of the grind that is direct sales. And fast forward to the end of 2015, I wind up, you know, quitting my sales job that I had at the time in a huff and, you know, like six months cash to burn. I was like, I'm going to make this internet money thing happen. And so nothing was working, nothing was working, nothing was working. And then somehow I got the idea like, man, well, maybe I could just go work for one of these online companies and like I can sell. So maybe I can just figure out how to sell online and just kind of like do what I did in direct sales, but do it on the internet. So I found out about copywriting. I kept hearing about this company called Agora who sells financial newsletters. I didn't know what that was at the time. Like I didn't have any experience doing any of this stuff, but people told me I could get rich writing financial copy. And like, that sounds great. I want to be rich. So I was like, I'm going to do that. And I picked up the phone and like, I started calling like all the numbers I could find for Agora. I like literally everything I would do to go set appointments. And through sheer luck, I somehow got hired by one of the Agora divisions with no experience, remote, and which like give, never happens. For context to that, can you give scope of Agora? Because that is a like, that's a massive newsletter organization. There's some big names there, which I had no idea those big names were owned by Agora. So most people have no idea what Agora is but they've probably seen some of the financial newsletters that they publish. So Agora is the largest privately, I guess not technically, it's not privately held anymore. Before one of the groups went public via SPAC, which we can talk about if you want, they were the largest privately held financial publishing company in the world. And we did like $1.5 billion in revenue in 2019 or something like that, or 2018. Essentially what we sold is how to get rich, investing in the stock market. So we sold information and research on things like penny stocks, mid caps, options trading strategies. If you remember like the James Altucher in 2017 crypto thing, that was ours. That was a brand that we ran. Like we ran James Altucher's business. Jim Rickards, we published pretty much all the... uh, Yeah, there's a number of them. Uh, Doug Casey. Doug Casey used to be there. I mean, like pretty much anyone that's anyone in the financial newsletter space. Agora is the titan of that industry. And, and that's where all the best marketers are. It's where you know all the money is. So I wound up working for one of those divisions starting in 2016. And then in 20, the end of 2018, I was offered a full-time in-house job in Baltimore for a different division of which I took. 
And then I wound up being copy chief for an imprint inside. And this gets really confusing because I had this like gigantic corporate structure tree oh, of yeah. like, you know, the Matroshka dolls of shell like yeah, divisions yeah. and imprints and subdivisions and it's is a mess. So my job at Agora was to write marketing messages to sell our newsletter products. So you know, I did lead generation, front end acquisition, retention, renewals. I specialized in selling book offers. That was my favorite thing to sell. What I really find interesting with your experience there is that all of the work you did was facing retail investors. When you write copy to a retail investor, I mean, there, there's probably so many different paths we can go there. Maybe I'll let you continue on, but I definitely want to come back to the discussion about copy and copywriting and engaging the retail audience because it's a massive industry and there's a lot of money out there. There is definitely a lot of opportunity in retail shareholders. So if the typical Agora audience, we call them Grandpa Kurt, and it is... We call them the age range is 55 until dead. So it's typically an older white Republican or libertarian man, generally speaking. That demo has kind of started to change over time, but it's usually they are either at or near retirement. They were successful in their professional career. So they were doctor, lawyer, engineer, salesperson. They probably had multiple financial advisors. They went through you know, first the dot-com crash where their financial advisor didn't get them out. They lost money in 2008 again. And at some point they decide, well, you know, I'm smart enough to operate on someone's brain. Uh, I think I'm smart enough to manage my own money hmm. or whatever. And so then they go down the path of being, you know, a self-directed investor and they're, they're like, I'm going to figure this out. And so that's typically how they start getting into investing or trading. That's kind of a, the typical person. Usually they don't have enough money saved. And so they need, you know, big, extraordinary gains in a short period of time to afford to retire. There are some higher net worth people that buy those products. But generally speaking, it's someone who probably has $150,000 to $300,000 saved and, you know, needs to triple or 5x their money in order to afford to stay retired. That sounds a little bit dangerous for them. To be, to be gambling in that sense, that's a whole nother conversation of, of how they should be managing their money against the risk of that. But interesting, really interesting how you laid out the persona of that person within the world of Agora. That's who buys financial products in general, right? It's typically older, wealthier people that are right-leaning. That's just generally true hmm. when you look at like who typically buys those things. We're seeing different stuff in younger demographics with you know kind of the, the recent kind of the Robin Hood effect, so to speak. Yeah, what's but your take there, man? What are you seeing from your experience dealing to one demographic to you seeing what is a pretty massive change and you know, an embrace of the Robin Hood culture? What do you see there? I see a lot of people are about to lose everything to people who are smarter than them. I mean, like just call it a spade a spade, right? Like long term, all those people are gonna lose. What can you say? There's a lot of people playing in, in a shark-filled pool. Very unsophisticated people who don't understand anything about capital markets. They have no understanding of basic finance. They have no understanding of portfolio construction. They typically take way too much risk. They're horrible at position sizing. They don't understand entries and exits. Like They're literally gambling. They're speculating for the most part. 
Again, that's a broad generalization, but that is sort of the double-edged sword of retail shareholders is that on one hand, you can build a fantastic shareholder base of people who believe in you and your product and ideally buy it and support you in the public markets. But equally, those people, if they're not investing in your company for the right reasons, are the worst possible people to have on your cap table. It's really this balance of you know, how do you make money? Because if you sell newsletters, then who cares? Because what you fundamentally sell is you sell a newsletter that has information in it. You're not managing their money. It's not your responsibility whether they make, make or lose money with your product. If you're a financial advisor, right, that's a different story. And if you're an issuer, well, you know, again, different story again as to where are your priorities in terms of serving your shareholders as a fiduciary. I mean, all three aspects could have a lot of discussion. So I think I derailed you. So take us back to your focus now and what you've built on there, because I mean, the world of financial writing is quite interesting, but now you're focused on, you know, a number of things. So yeah, take us back. Eventually I left Agora for a variety of reasons, but I think the main one is I just wanted to do things my way and that just wasn't going to realistically happen in Agora which again, it's fine, right? Like they have a billion and a half dollar business and I'm just some guy they employ. No hard feelings, but I decided that I just wanted to run a different business in terms of I wanted to not sell newsletters anymore that involved me telling people that they're going to get rich when I know that that's not true. Mm. So what happened is on my way out the door, I wound up meeting my now business partner, Jordan Galissi, who owns FINRA regulated crowdfunding portal. And he came from investor relations IR, which is a weird place in general, but fundamentally, right? It's selling retail shareholders and on buying shares of, of a company, typically a penny stock. And he was tired of doing that. So he said, the reason I started doing crowdfunding is I wanted to work with entrepreneurs to help actually capitalize their company instead of just making the stock promoters rich, Mm -hmm. which felt like was happening in his business, which was the only person that won was the stock promoter who was dumping shares, but the investor always lost and the entrepreneur always lost in those types of arrangements. So he said, well, at least this way, we can at least raise money directly into the companies to help that company grow. And we can set up a financial product that's fair, that's investor friendly and founder friendly, that gives people properly aligned incentives in the capitalization process of an early stage company. Well, so, so this is huge, man, because this is what is the step into crowdfunding. And what, as I understand it, and I think you got to give us a background on it, but like the Jobs Act led to crowdfunding, led to, I think it's reggae. Like there's a lot of things, especially being in Canada that I'm not terribly familiar with. Can you give us some background to it? Because it is the world of effectively private capital. Retail capital can go into private companies, but it's becoming more and more powerful. And there's a lot to be said about it. Yeah. So let's just go back to ye olden days of capital markets. So if you want to raise capital pre the Jobs Act, you pretty much had a limited options to do. So you could do a registered offering, right? So you file with the SEC and you go public, you have an initial public offering if you want to get onto the public exchanges. But if you're raising private capital, you're probably raising it through Rule 504 or through Regulation D, so 506B or 506C. And then there's some other weird exemptions that statistically were never used. 
So this is where you get the PPMs, private placement memorandums, and you know, you've got to fill out this awful document. You got to get wet signatures on things. You got to do all this KYC verification. And the most burdensome is that you couldn't advertise, right? There's no advertising, no general mm -hmm. solicitation allowed for private investment opportunities. So that all changed in 2012. So in 2012, the Jobs Act is passed under the Obama administration, and it changes two important things. Oh, by the way, also private markets, could only accredited investors were allowed to invest in private offerings under Regulation D. Which uh, I recall as an example, I think it was Ben Bernanke, head of the reserve, who couldn't subscribe to a private placement because he was an accredited investor. Is that true? Yeah, there's something like that, yeah. I can't imagine that that's true. His federal salary should have been higher than that, but he could have been disqualified for other reasons. Yeah, there was some clause in there that would disqualify it, or that was like one of the pain points that was an example of how burdensome the requirements are and how they push people out of, of participating in private placements. Yeah, I wish I could speak on that. I'm going to I'm gonna go look that up now after yeah. this. With the JOBS Act, two important things happen. So one is it allowed for general solicitation of certain private placements, certain private market offerings, which is at the time would have been Regulation A. And I think that was the updated tier two. There's, I'm going to get way in the weeds here, so I'm actually going to back out. So we'll come back to that in a second. Okay. And then the other thing it did was it allowed for accredited and non-accredited investors to invest into certain securities. So fast forward to 2016, the JOBS Act goes through several revisions called titles. So in 2016, Title III of the JOBS Act goes into effect, and that puts into place regulation crowdfunding. What it did was it created a carve-out for a new type of entity called a crowdfunding portal. And this is like a broker-dealer, right? So a broker-dealer fundamentally is registered with the SEC and is authorized to market and sell securities and receive commission from the sale of securities products. And they can also give advice. Those are probably mm -hmm. the two main ones. So a funding portal is kind of like a step down from there, has less regulatory requirements and burdens, cannot give advice in a funding portal, and it is explicitly to facilitate the sale of regulation crowdfunding securities, right? And the JOBS Act, by the way, stands for Jumpstart Our Businesses and Startups Act, and it was to give smaller issuers an ability to access private markets at a substantially lower administrative and regulatory burden. So whereas, you know, doing an IPO or something would cost like a million dollars in prep work in six to 18 months, and then, you know, a million dollars a year or whatever to stay public to yeah. comply with Sarbanes-Oxley and, you know, all these reporting requirements, regulation crowdfunding or Reg CF, all you got to do is file something called a Form C with the SEC can typically get kind of all the stuff done for under $15,000 in terms of lawyer fees. At the time, you could raise up to a million dollars in regulation crowdfunding, and all you had to provide was uh, reviewed financial statements. So didn't need to get audited, just like reviewed financial statements was all that you needed. And essentially what this created was like e-commerce for securities products. 
instead of having to go through all this rigmarole and regulation D to like file stuff and you got to get super expensive private placement memorandum and you got to fax things and get wet signatures and go through KYC and like it's expensive to bring in their shareholders. Now someone could literally go on the internet and buy your shares through like a literal checkout process. And then, you know, either get handled you know, by a transfer agent or book entry or, or whatever. But functionally, it was open to accredited and non-accredited. It was general solicitation enabled. So for the first time, you could issue a private market securities, advertise that you have it for sale and take money from anyone over the age of 18 mm-hmm. in America. And now, as I understand that the cap on it is now up to $5 million. Yes. So May 15th. An updated round of revisions went into place. Several things happened, but most significantly, the 12-month limit of how much any issuer can raise in regulation crowdfunding went from $1 million per year to $5 million per year, which for a lot of smaller issuers made it a lot more interesting. So a million is cool, but $5 million is better for the same structurally you know, administrative burden to do it. So with all this... How is the success of this played out? And and what I do want to get into as well, because you know a lot about it, is how do you properly market and raise money through a crowdfunding scheme? But what are some examples of successes you've seen? Let's see if I can take this in a couple stages. So let's just talk about regulation crowdfunding as a concept. So if we look at the growth of the industry over the past five years, I want to say, I want to say we've seen, so every year we've seen more money being raised through regulation crowdfunding. And I want to say that something like it's, I think $900 million has been raised like lifetime to date through it, something like that. Last year in 2020, it was 230 million, right? So every year it's, it's gotten bigger. Any idea of the average placement size or average financing? There's a bunch of stats that Crowdfund Capital Advisors has on, on you know across issuers. It's weird to use those stats because we're starting to see more qualified issuers come into the ecosystem. Hmm. But there was, I mean, there's been plenty of companies that have raised the full million. Every issuer that we've listed has raised that. But I mean, I, I think the really the coolest thing is that it gives business owners just a different option for capital, especially in the early stages when going venture might not be the right opportunity or taking money from an angel, like taking a deal that causes you to lose control or give up too much of it too early or kind of get beat up on your valuation when maybe that's just not the right fit for you. You now have an opportunity to basically just set your own price and make your own market for your securities and to build your initial shareholder base whether it's from friends and family, it's from your local community, it's from your initial customer base. There's a really a lot of cool ways that this enables people that just aren't a good fit for venture. And for all, all these founders, whether it's you know minority, women, anyone that doesn't live in Silicon Valley, basically, where there's just mm. no capital, it really gives people an opportunity that no matter where you live, you can raise money for your company without having to do the VC dog and pony show. Yeah, absolutely. Of which is there's hooks and limited success for those who are looking to raise. It's really hard to raise capital that way. Not to knock it, but it's just not for anyone who wants to build the equivalent of a brick and mortar or the mom pop business that's got a really great opportunity that you know could grow into a, a meaningful business. 
VCs aren't going to look at you. So if you're going down the crowdfunding path, how do you go about it? And how do you go about drumming up enough interest to pull people in to see your offering, see, see that you're investing and get people to actually convert? Well, isn't that the, I guess, the $5 million question now? So eventually what this comes down to is going to be valuation in terms of your offering and then your marketing distribution channel. So if you have a network already or you can get access to an influencer of some kind, so like the people at Agora, for example, and have someone that can endorse your deal and can get you eyeballs to your page, just like, you know, full stop, if you get that, you're going to close your round because you've got mm. someone who is endorsing your deal to some people that they know and kind of drumming up the investor volume. So if you've got distribution, then that's probably the easiest way to make it happen. But if you don't, it means you're going to have to actually market your securities, right? Because there's no market for your securities right now. So like this is a product that has to get sold. And this is really the case for most issuers in general, right? Like most smaller issuers below $100 million in revenue, there is no market for that securities product. There's mm -hmm. no analyst coverage. There's no interest. Like no one's out there looking for Bob's ABC store, class A shares, right? No one wants that. My colleague says, nobody needs to buy your stock. You know, you got to get over that hurdle. So fundamentally, this is a product that has to get sold. Yes. Right. And this is exactly what we had to do at Agora. And this is exactly what IR people do, right? Which is how do you sell something that there's no demand for? Well, you have to generate the demand for your products. And to that comes down to the big idea is when you're an early stage company or you're a smaller issuer, especially if you don't have a strong financial performance, right? You're still losing money or you have like, you haven't, you're not a big company with 30 years of track record. Like, so how do you value this thing very much? It's the vision for the business you have and people's belief in your ability to execute on that vision. So the better you are at articulating the vision of your business and where you're going and like showing your ability to set and hit milestones, well, then investors reward you for doing that. That's kind of the equation. All of these dynamics get really skewed when you have unsophisticated retail investors because they don't know anything. And for better, for worse, what, they, you know, what do they want? Make money. What do they not want? Lose money. That's as far as they thought. And so typically, they either, they really believe in the project and so they're going to back it which I believe that's way better for donations. So like, hey, I've got a little store and I'm going to launch this new product. Well, you should go take donations then on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. But if you're a business and you're going to build a shareholder base, which is a really serious decision, then you now need to be like a real CEO who understands that your shareholders expect a return. And so you have to be able to answer the question, what's in it for the investor? For investing in your company. And it has to be more than, well, you want to back me and support my mission, right? Not a good securities product. Yeah. Difference there, isn't there between, you know, support my mission. This is what I want to create versus this is the business we're building. Yep. So part of what the CEO has to decide is what is my plan for the business? So, you know, if you want to run a lifestyle business, then taking on outside capital, you should definitely not do that. <laughs> the idea that you're going to wind up 
having a business and then returning dividends to the shareholders is just lunacy. And I feel like personally insulted when I ask people about their exit plans and they're like, well, I guess we could go public, we could get acquired, or maybe we'll issue dividends. And it's like, you're going to do none of those things because you're going to zero if you told me that. If you want a lifestyle business, you know, bootstrap that thing, borrow it from friends and family, like get some cash however you want it. But as soon as you take on investor capital, the only way that person's making money is by selling those shares. And they typically want liquidity sooner than later. So that means you better have a pathway of you're like, you're going to sell that business in the next 36 months kind of thing, or you're going to go public. That's it. What kind of businesses have you seen make the best candidates for using crowdfunding? I think there's a distinction in the question. So there's typically what issuers ask me who don't know anything about crowdfunding. They'll say, how much can I raise? How fast can I raise it? And how much does it cost? And like, what are my expenses to it? Totally the wrong questions to ask. Mostly because it doesn't demonstrate any understanding of like the benefits of building a shareholder base. Like mm-hmm. most people are desperate for money. And so they're raising money for completely the wrong reasons. And that's how they get screwed as they get themselves into bad deals, you should raise money when you don't need it. That's like the best time to raise money. Yeah, of course, yeah. Starting with that. So in terms of who is the best candidate, it's companies who understand the responsibilities of raising capital. And I believe that too much success is based around raising the money, right? We celebrate, oh, company A just did a $200 million round at a billion dollar valuation or like all these other things as if that is some level of success. Like, awesome, I've raised $10 million. And all that means is you're just really good at wasting other people's money. That has absolutely no indication of your ability to take investor capital and turn it into returns for your shareholders and create shareholder value. So if you don't have an understanding of how you're going to create share, create and like return value to your shareholders, you should not raise money, period. Full stop. The best businesses for raising any kind of capital are ones who understand that raising money is now a responsibility, right? And as soon as you take money from someone, you have a responsibility to act as a fiduciary to your shareholders, of which most people don't. It's just a piggy bank. And they're going to fuck their shareholders like straight up. We're going to screw these retail shareholders because we can't get any institutional money. But these people are idiots and morons. So we're going to we're just going to screw them on this one. Happens far too often. And that's unfortunate. The best companies are the ones who have a real capital market strategy and understand that if they're going to raise money, they will need to raise another round sometime in the future. Is it a logical path for a company to look and say, okay, well, we're not going to go anywhere near the OTC and raise capital, QB, QX, whatever, and go the crowdfunding path, raise their five mil, build the business, find a milestone. And is there a logical potential jump to the NASDAQ? Yeah, I think there is. I think that, again, having a strategy of knowing what your exit is going to be. I really think that if you're an issuer and you're going to go public, you have to go NASDAQ or NYSE, getting onto the OTC or bulletin boards, Again, unless you've got a strategy to move your stock up and, and do it, you risk the very real just bleed to death thing of being because of the requirements, the reporting requirements of being a publicly traded company, like just that burden is real, right? So again, right, a lot of entrepreneurs say, hey, we'll, we'll go public on the OTC because we're trying to solve a different problem called getting access to capital. 
when what happens is they just put like a debt time bomb in their business and they have no real way. They, like, they just don't like they shouldn't have even gone there in the first place because, again, they don't understand capital markets. But it seemed like a good solution at the time because they needed money. So they got put into a poor position. It's something that far too many entrepreneurs go down a path and don't realize the implications of their financing until a couple of years down the path and they've just got their ass handed to them. That said, I mean, the purpose of this podcast is to try to shine light on that and provide advice and, and opportunities to keep them out of that. I am curious, though, to, to shift gears here a bit. When we talk about marketing and copywriting and storytelling, most specifically storytelling about an opportunity, what's your take about that? How have you written in the past and structured a narrative for opportunities? Is there an approach you take? Yes, I call it my six-part deal story framework. There we go. And you need to identify the six things to position your company as the only logical investment opportunity for the person who is considering investing in your company. So we'll start by saying, what do I think is the biggest mistake people make when raising money? Because this is why I made it this way, is if you look at S1s, even public offerings or private placement memorandums or all these things, I think that far too much of the story that people tell is a self-serving story about their company and who they are and how great they are and blah, blah, blah. And they don't do a good enough job of making the opportunity bigger. So here's what I mean. So I come from, I'm like a very analytical systems oriented person and having- Slightly one, cynical, very analytical, yes. I would say I am the cynical optimist, right? Like short okay. term, I'm super cynical and pessimistic about like nothing will work. I think it's all bullshit. Like long term as an investor, I'm like super bullish on the future. Like I want to make things happen. So it's like this weird dichotomy. Uh -huh. But I think you need that level of skepticism in capital markets because the danger is very real. So I come from a background where I've sold all kinds of investing and trading strategies. So I've seen a bunch of stuff. And I think the only stock trading strategy that ever made sense to me was point and figure charting. And do you know what point figure is? No. So no, um, different reference, but no. It's like the charts have X's and O's on them. Yeah. Right. So learned it from a client of mine at the time and wound up getting a Jack Dorsey book, Point and Figure Charting. And it came from something way earlier, but basically it was coming back to the fundamentals that the markets are driven entirely by supply and demand. And that the price of your share, at least in the public markets, is determined by the battle between supply and demand. And if you're paying attention to the volume and trading volume and like who is buying and selling your shares, you, you can kind of see the direction of the stock as it, you know, as it breaks through channels. Because you know, if, if supply and demand are fighting, at some point, a narrative is going to take control and one of them is going to win. Either the bull case is going to win and it's going to go up or the bear case is going to win and it's going to go down, right? Fundamentally. That's how that works. Now, in the private markets, you kind of don't have that thing, but you have a different problem, which is in a lot of ways, the success of your business involves you raising money later again, right? It's statistically unlikely that if you do a raise of any kind, that that's the last raise you'll do. Mm -hmm. Very unlikely, because if that were the case, you should go get a loan from your bank, mm -hmm. right? Non dilutive capital, awesome. But if you are getting on the investor-backed thing, like you will have to raise more money again. And you also need to get analyst coverage of your business. 
which means you can't leave anything up to chance and you need to take charge of telling your story and placing your business in the correct framework to say, here's how you should value my company. And this is a big problem with a lot of stocks on the OTC is that they get no analyst coverage and anyone that does, they value them really weird. So, right. You know, I just want to reflect on something. I remember being in boardrooms with analysts when we were doing basically public venture capital deals. And, and I quickly realized that we had to tell them the questions they should be asking us. Yes. Because that directed their narrative for them to wrap their head around the opportunity in the way that they needed to write the coverage. Right. And it was a really interesting young perspective onto, well, Bay Street or Wall Street that, ah, that's how these guys work. Once you really understand how publishing as a business works, which is all anything that's written or media that's published, typically it is not the analyst who writes that stuff. Same thing with laws, right? Like some lobbyist has come in and written a bill and given it to the congressperson. Like that's normal, right? Or like there's a journalist or there's someone working at a magazine and you show up with the article written for them and they can just go publish, right? Because every publishing business always needs more content all the time. That's actually a really good point getting a level under that I don't think a lot of people realize is that the narrative or the law or the story that hits the media sources was, yeah, very rarely written by the publisher themselves. It's been written by the person who's got the interest, the motive behind it, and it happens to serve a need that the publisher has at that point in time. Correct. And again, without getting into like the deep, deep cynical nature of someone who's, who's made the sausage of propaganda in the media, so to speak, but like it's all a narrative. Everything that you see has been constructed for a purpose of some kind. And you as the CEO, you need to be in control of that narrative at all times, right? Because mm. otherwise, someone will frame you somewhere else and it's going to screw you. So, for example, Salesforce had this problem, and although they're not a small issuer, but when they were first coming out, the analysts wanted to value them the way that like Microsoft and Siebel were. So they were trying to you know, give them a multiple off of free cash flow, which is appropriate when you're a 20, 30-year enterprise business, there's not much growth left, and your profit margins are 50, 60%, and you're kicking off all this cash flow. But when you're a growth story, right, that thing would hobble your valuation going mm-hmm. into market. So like they had to do a lot and no one had ever seen SaaS, like no one had ever seen any of this stuff, cloud computing kind of thing. So they really had to work to control the narrative of the valuation of their company so that the analysts would set bigger price targets based on things. So kind of knowing that thing, you got to take it all the way back down to an early stage company that has, you know, little to no financial history or track record. And basically, it's just a guess as to how this stock should be priced. So your ability to decide how should you value my business is the most important question you as a CEO need to answer. And if you don't know how to do it, you have a new problem, which is a separate thing. Are we still in part one of the six part of your framework? So we're going to get into it. What I do is I want, oh, here's why I said this. So from point and figure, if you look at sort of the system of point and figure is you're looking for macro trends. So if you're looking at a global stock market, right? Like I don't care how good your business is. If you're betting into a declining trend, you're not going to outrun that trend. It's working against you. Mm -hmm. So from like the macro level, the mega trend level, 
right? Ideally, it's trending up. And then from down there, you know, a huge portion of your gains in the stock market is going to be the sector that you're in. Same thing, right? Things move cyclically. And some sectors are going to be in bullish periods of time. And again, like just statistically, to throw a dart at any stock in that category, you're going to make money versus like a, a category that's going down. There's always exceptions to that. But statistically speaking, you'll do way, way better if you're in stocks that are in a bullish trend than in a bearish trend. So those two, and then you can go down to whatever, you know, down to individual stocks to figure out what's the best thing to do based on all kinds of things. So step one of the deal story framework is defining the mega trend. And this is going to control how your valuation is set up. So for example, if the mega trends you're talking about, let's just pick some examples, fintech. So fintech can mean anything, but if you want to get up some big numbers, you need to describe to your shareholders why your business is going to be around 10 years from now and not like, hey, is this just some fad that's happening, right? So with the mega trend, I used to write for Harry Dent, by the way. So like, I kind of grew up in the business doing cycles. That was kind of what I learned from Harry. And so if you look at like a cycle, for example, what I want to see is this is a persistent, probably decade, at least a decade long trend. Mm. And it's going to go for at least another decade. FinTech, for example, if you want to look at sort of the mega trend in FinTech, since the 80s, we've seen this gigantic motion from the public markets into the private markets, right? Like that, like we, we can see it over decades. It's just been moving that direction and assets are moving into, into, private, into private markets and alts, Right. So that's a sustainable, durable mega trend that's happening. Now, that trend is being driven by a bunch of forces, and you want to know what those are, right? So like, hey, 20 years ago, this thing started, and what's really moved this has been, you know, these six key pieces of legislation, you know, consumer sentiment has, you know, has changed, and new technology, like the iPhone, for example, was kind of like the unlock for a lot of companies in tech was until the iPhone reached mass adoption, like a lot of these businesses just wouldn't work because there just wasn't enough distribution. You want to be able to paint a story. It's like, yeah, man, this is a trillion dollar mega trend and there's so much things and like all these things have happened over time, which have now created step two, a unique opportunity, right? An opportunity that wasn't available until today which was thanks to this combination of forces, now all of a sudden an opportunity has been made available and that opportunity has a market cap, right? So you could say, let's take cannabis, for example. So, hey, mega trend, cannabis, right? People are projecting the cannabis industry as a whole is gonna be anywhere between 80 billion to like 200 billion in the next five years, who knows? But there's no way to just like bet on cannabis, Right. But hey, like inside of the cannabis mega trend are pockets of opportunity that we can compete for. And then we want to say, and this is the opportunity we're picking because of all of these reasons why, that this is like the best opportunity in the mega trend for our business. And that might be just to pick an example the opportunity that has presented itself is last mile delivery logistics. This is the, the thing that you need to focus on because like if we can win this thing, like whatever, right? Yeah. And you know, it could be an $80 billion or again, pick a random number. And this helps you frame like, hey, this is a multi-billion trillion dollar industry. There's tons and tons of money here. And the opportunity we're going after is this one. And that's worth you know, some level of clicks down. And we're competing to be the winner of that opportunity. It's like a game. It's like a tournament. And then in the opportunity, you want to kind of lay out the tournament or the game board 
for the reader so that they can kind of understand how this works because most retail investors don't know anything about the markets at all. You know what I, I really, I like where you're going with this and I hope our listeners have stuck in here because I've heard this before and actually had a number of guests speak about this who've you know highly successful and have been around those who, I like to say, those who play chess when others are playing checkers. And what they say is that when they've been around very successful entrepreneurs, they have a vision for the future, which is so articulated, but also it seemed to drive back to what you're referring to as a mega trend. Here's the big thing. Here's the big issue of how the world is changing. Here's what we're going after right now. But then this and this and this is going to culminate to be the success we're building towards. But it's not just like, oh, we're building a $5 million, $100 million business. It's like, here's how we're going to redefine capitalism. Yeah. Like they play big is yeah. what I see. And then they articulate it in a framework as you're laying out here that I think is, it's really interesting to put the two together right now. I would say the majority of my time when I'm prepping deals to take to market, it's figuring out how to position the company correctly. Because again, what we want to do is we want to build a narrative that tells the story of, hey, here's the vision of the future that we see that can be real. And here's the opportunity that we're going to be going after as a company, because it answers a lot of problematic questions, which I think the biggest one is going to be, is your business still going to exist five years from now? Right? If I were to look at like pitch decks across the board, I think my biggest gripe is that they all start with, quote, the problem. Okay. Right? Hmm. And I think that now step three is problem. But if you haven't laid out the bigger mega trend and the forces and then an opportunity, now keep in mind, an opportunity implies that people are spending money on something. This is a $100 billion opportunity that implies that there's money available for your thing. But like, Hey, there's this huge problem, man. So many people are mean to each other. That's why we're going to create the anti-mean solution. Great. Who's paying for it? Is there a market available for it right now? Right? Like there's nothing there, right? So unless you can describe all these other things, the problem has no context or no value, right? Because now you're assuming that other people also believe that there's a problem there. But what I like to do is I like to set up as a tournament, right? Because now you can say, Hey, first place, 50% market share, right? estimated value, $80 billion, right? Second place, 25% market share, third place, 10% market share. And then who cares after yeah. that? And so, so you actually do that in your writing. So I can't legally do it because that'd be a forward looking statement, but like conceptually, when you look at how markets form, right? Like no one takes hundred percent unless yeah. you're smokers and you take 94% of the jam market. But, <laughs> but like, but like, look at the biggest companies, typically number one at most is going to be 60% of the market cap, but you're competing against other players for the number one spot. So like literally it's you and who are the other players and you're all competing for the trophies. And then there's like rules, regulations, objectives and strategies and things. And like, there's all this stuff going on. And then now the problem is, okay, so why hasn't the market been, why hasn't the opportunity been seized yet? Well, there's problems in the market that exist that prevent a winner from emerging. Now, all of a sudden, these problems make sense. Okay, well, great. Well, the biggest problem, for example, with marijuana, and this is a promo that I wrote, is you've been promised for years that you're going to get rich betting on pot stocks, but you haven't. You probably lost a lot of money on these stupid penny stocks. So what's the problem? Well, what I did is I set up the problem in suiting of my issuer is the problem is it's illegal to advertise these things and you can't ship them anywhere. 
So like the e-commerce is a problem. So you've got problems you can't advertise. It's super expensive to open up a physical location. You can't get banked. That's starting to change. You can't ship anything. And so it's like in order for this cannabis market to form, right, all these problems, these infrastructural problems, they all have to get solved, right? And you want to create this believable case that like, hey, these are all the problems. And this is why like you haven't gotten rich in cannabis yet is because like all this stuff. And then eventually it boils down to the one main problem, which is they call it the last green mile. Okay. Is that all of this infrastructure is already been built. There's tons and tons of supply. There's brands everywhere. But the real problem is, is once you get it into the brick and mortar's location, now you have to sell it to a retail customer and get the product to them. That is the problem right there. Like that's the last thing that gets to get solved. And if you can solve the last mile delivery problem, you win because now you can actually complete the full market cycle. Now you have all these problems. So now step four is the mechanism. There's a magic wand. There's like a sword that can slay the dragon, the Grendel or so to speak. Like what's the thing that solves all the problems you've identified in this opportunity. And that's going to be like the core intellectual property of the business. It's their method. It's their strategy. It's not the products they sell. It's the philosophy of business. It's the way they look at the market. It's a protocol. It's a method. It's a blueprint. It's a piece of something. It's a patent. I don't know. Right? Mm, yeah. And, and then you have after the mechanism, like this is the thing that's going to like, you know, this is the magic weapon. Now you have the catalyst, step five, which is why now and why this because your reader, your shareholder has thousands of stocks they could buy. And from a retail investor's perspective, they don't want to be early and have to wait 10 years. They want to get like right before the hockey stick. They want to get in like the literal second before it goes up a thousand percent. That's what they want. The catalyst is why is now the time to get on this? And typically it's going to be a forward looking statement because this law was just passed and it's going to open up a bunch of other stuff. This other thing has happened or the time is now because things are turning. It's creating this pressure as to why like this is going to be time for it. And then, and then only then, now you can talk about your company, the hero of the story, the solution, right? And then now once the person, the reader, your shareholder, they understand your story, now they can see the direction, Right. And they can see like the plan, they can see the market the way that you see it, they can kind of understand how big the problem is. And more importantly, it sets you up to describe your valuation and create excitement. So when you say, hey, so why are we valued at seven and a half million dollars for this round? Because of this. Here's why, mm-hmm. right? We can solve all these problems and no one else can. I have another framework called the seven power laws, which is purpose. So your vision for, for the world and your customers, people, your team who's going to execute on this vision, your partnerships. So this is the strength of your network and your ability to secure partnerships with suppliers, vendors, you know, distribution, all the other stuff, intellectual properties. So your ability to create and defend intellectual properties through patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, et cetera. Then you have your brand promises, which is the products that you create for certain customer segments. You've got promotions, which is your sales and marketing strategy, and then profits, which is your business model. Until you've described all of that other stuff, you telling people how great your business is, why you've got the dopest weed, and like all this, like none of that stuff has any context. I don't know what I'm looking at, right? Like I don't know how to value this company. I don't know what we do. Like I'm, I'm a retail investor. I don't know any of this stuff. So you really have to tell them what's going on in the game to get them excited. 
So mm-hmm. now when they make a bet on you, it's like sports betting, right? They're like, they kind of get the game. It's like, oh, sweet. Yeah. It's, it's the NFL, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. There's like this thing, right? Like I got teams and you're all right, cool. Like you're my team now and you're going to go after the ring. What I like is that as you're talking through these frameworks, I'm seeing one, how in some ways we've been applying this to the client work we've been doing, but it really comes back now what I'm thinking through this of when you set things up, as you've described, instead of just coming and saying, we're raising money, here's our valuation. Instead of somebody just getting hung on that and having all the objections, you're telling them all the reasons why it's possible, why it's great from a high level, and then bringing them down to finally say, and this is our valuation they've ideally answered all their questions to the big things that they want to feel satisfied about before you pop a number into their head. I find it interesting how you've approached this and also where you've come from and learning how you put these narratives together. Well, thank you. Again, if you look at where most people are when they try and raise money is they have all these weird technical questions that don't make any sense. The last season, not even tertiary, but like you're like step 27 here and you're asking like, what portal should I list on? It's like, we're nowhere near answering that question. You were over here is like, why are you raising money? Right? Yeah. Like, let's start with that. Like, what's your vision for the future? Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And the two were like, why are you even in this business in the first place? Right. And the worst answer is, is because I think I can make money and it's a feature another company doesn't offer. Like instant no. So much of it is your ability to tell a really captivating story that the person wants to make real with you and their belief in your ability to execute on that vision. That drives your valuation more than any other thing. Look at Tesla. I mean, basically the single greatest car company that doesn't make any money selling cars. Yeah. Apparently they make money by pumping and dumping Bitcoin and selling (laughs) carbon credits, but like they don't make any money selling cars. But Elon Musk is a master showman and he's like, we're going to Mars, bitch, right? Like that's where, we're, that's where we're going, man. We're going to Mars. We're going to be an interplanetary species, right? Not like a totally unprofitable car company that sells carbon credits. That's his story. And he is able to suck in the best people in the world to come work for him, to make that vision real. And like that really is the superpower. And he can at a moment's time get infinite money into his company. Yeah, it's pretty, he's pretty remarkable. That's for sure. That's for sure. What do you have for final thoughts within the world? You bring a really interesting experience set to what you do now and for entrepreneurs and those in the capital markets. What final thoughts do you have? My final thoughts, it comes back to the same basics, which is if you're going to go into capital markets is you need to have a capital markets strategy figured out before you decide you're going to raise any money. Because if you don't have a multi-year strategy for constantly acquiring capital, then you're going to be in this weird start and stop thing. You're going to make these mistakes that are going to cripple you later on, to be honest. Mm. So if you are a business owner, fundamentally, you need to capitalize your company and you only have a couple options of getting cash into your business, right? So number one is revenue, right? The best cash that you can get in there. Number two is to take on debt, credit, right? And then number three is to sell assets. What most people don't realize is... One of the things, the assets you can sell that you can just manufacture is shares, right? You can just make a securities product and that can be debt or equity. And that is a thing that you can sell to someone to get cash into your company. But like understanding the cost of capital and again, having a strategy for how am I going to capitalize the company as a going concern? It has to start from there because a lot of times there's other places to go get money that are a way better option for your business. 
mm-hmm. that it would be non-dilutive and wouldn't put you in like a debt death spiral. Yeah, or, and it's, or wouldn't put a bunch of stocks in the market that are going to get shorted and are going to and are going to cripple your valuation. Yeah, yeah. How many dead juniors do you see, which actually once in a once upon a time had a hope, but are now just yeah as good as gone. And the reason why is because they went to the OTC. Yeah. Because <laughs> as soon as someone can sell well, short your shares, true. you lose control of your valuation. Yeah. The reason to stay private is right is you can control your valuation. And the reason why you want to build a strong retail shareholder base before you go public via crowdfunding is that by the time you get public, you want to have done all of the marketing and narrative building so that your shareholders are in it for the long term, right? Like you don't want people to trade your stock. You don't. You don't yeah, want, you want them con- you know, convicted in your story and just deeply believing and part of the growth. Yeah. So your most important thing as, as a company is you want to establish a track record of setting and hitting milestones because investors reward companies who you say, hey, I need some cash. I'm great. Like, what are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to do these things. All right, cool. Well, here's the money. And they're like, you go do that thing. Like, hey, cool. You did those things and the value of my stock went up. Let's do it again. I'll, I'll give you some more money, right? And your ability to, again, describe the narrative of where you're going, to move the company towards that vision over time and develop your track record, you can do that in the private markets. And if you have a track record of doing all of those things, well, now by the time you get to the public markets, it's really, really easy to justify your valuation. It's easy to get institutional investors because, again, like that's what you need. It's like it's so much easier to fix the real problems in your business. But most people are like, I just need to get some money somehow. So it's the worst negotiating position. So if you want to really have an opportunity to create a going concern, to create jobs and have a significant exit event, right? it all starts with having a plan in the beginning about how to capitalize the company and not getting sucked into a problem where you're trying to like do a short-term solution that creates huge problems for you years down the road, but you were not willing to just suck it up for a little longer and go through some grinding pain and you decided to do the wrong thing at the wrong moment in time, and it killed your business. That would be my final thoughts is before you do any of these things, if you don't have an advisor or a capital markets professional who is working to help you understand how to capitalize your company, all these other questions you have about raising money will not help. Right? It's the same thing as if you go to a financial advisor, why do they sit down and do a financial plan with you? Because if they don't understand you, your business, your financial needs, and the direction that you're going, all the other thing is just hypothetical. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That is great advice to add to that. It's find that capital markets advisor you can trust. That takes due diligence. How can listeners follow your work? Really the best thing is if you want to check out what we're doing here in the US. So Equifund.com is our portal. And I handle all the investor education and I do all the marketing for all of our issuers. So create a free account. You can check out the issuers we have listed. And then I send out an email newsletter three to five times a week where talk about raising money, talk about trends that we're following and kind of talk about all things crowdfunding. Very cool, man. Yeah, very interesting. So nice to connect. Thanks for making the time. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.